Welcome to Bruegel. We are delighted to have you all here um, for this conversation about the future of banking. We're going to hear a presentation from my colleague Nicolas Veron. Can you all hear me, by the way? Are the microphones turned on? Yes? No? Maybe? Hello, hello. All right. This, um, today's presentation will be webcast. And I believe when you ask wonderful questions and answers, they will also be webcast. So do enjoy uh, your time contributing to the greater public conversation. We have a wonderful panel here today. Nicolas Veron, my colleague, is going to present his report. And then we have a couple of panelists who I will introduce to you further as we get ready for them to speak, um, who will comment on it. And then hopefully we will have some time for questions and answers later at the end. My name is Rebecca Christie. I'm a visiting fellow here at Bruegel, and I'm delighted that you could join us in person, that you braved the rain. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, so you say my report, but it's not my report. It's our report. Uh, Y'alls. Uh, exactly. Uh, and uh, it is a report in a series. It's actually number 22 in a series. A series, a Geneva report on the world economy. It's, uh, uh, it's been there since 1999. You will tell me annual since 1999, that's not 22. And you will be right, there have been some special issues, but not many. Uh, the Geneva report is uh, led and coordinated by Hugo Panizza, the International Center for Monetary and Banking Studies in Geneva. Uh, and uh, it's also supported by CPR, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which uh, actually publishes the report. So we're very happy with the partnership. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and this report was co-authored, as is about always the case in this series, uh, by several people. Uh, what is not always the case is that it's gender balanced. I think we're the first one. Uh, but uh, ex except maybe one of the special reports, but which had only two co-authors. So we're proud of that. And the authors are uh, Catherine Petralia, who is the leader of Cabbage, a fintech startup uh, based in Atlanta, right? Um, and uh, Thomas Philippon, who is uh, an economist uh, well-known uh, probably in this audience, based in New York at New York University. And Tar Rice, uh, who is uh, now in the Secretariat of the Committee on uh, uh, payments and markets infrastructures in Basel, uh, was, uh, I have to mention it, uh, even so it will create uh, an issue in the panel, very generous help from Sam Tosik, uh, who is also uh, at Cabbage, and uh, frankly uh, counts for us as a co-author, given how much input he provided uh, in the, the paper, even so life being unfair, he doesn't have his name on it. Uh, but he's acknowledged in the acknowledgments. Um, so uh, that means that our panel is not really a panel of discussion, because Sam uh, really will uh, act uh, very much uh, as one of the proponents of what we're saying in the report, uh, or at least that's my expectation. Um, and uh, <laughs> Exactly. If you have, uh, if you, if, if you, uh, yeah, but anyway. <laughs> so, um, so that was a team effort, uh, and, uh, and I will actually make the presentation uh, on this basis. I will uh, use, uh, I, I've made uh, relatively few changes uh, from a presentation which Tara has used in the first um, uh, presentation of this report, which was in London two weeks ago. 
and I also want to give a special credit to Tara because you know how this teamwork is and uh, there's always uh, an element of leadership and uh, somebody has to take that burden. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's the view of all coursers uh, that Tara has uh, done an extraordinary work of you know, making things happen, uh, uh, both in terms of uh, substantial input, but also in terms of project management. Uh, and, uh, and I'm very grateful that I think my other coursers also are. So um, what's the report? You, I think most of you have the report. This is the outline. Uh, we have uh, only four chapters, an introduction, uh, something about banking, something about competition to banks from fintech and, uh, and big tech, and something about public policy. So uh, that will be broadly the uh, outline of my own presentation of the report, because uh, that's the easy way to do it. So the first uh, chapter is really about banks. Uh, banks are special. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're not really like other companies, and uh, especially modern banks, as they have existed since at least the 17th century, uh, are uh, typically privately owned, not always, uh, typically joint stock companies, not always, but always with a government charter. So the, the, the notion of a bank which is not licensed, charter or licensed, we can discuss the semantics, but a, a bank that's not licensed by government uh, is something that has existed in the remote past, but is essentially obsolete. Uh, if it's not licensed, it's not a bank. And, uh, and, and so uh, banks have uh, economies of size and scope, especially to engage in large-scale international transactions. Uh, but the link to the sovereign is something that is really definitional for banks, at least in the modern age. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry because the format of the slides uh, has problems uh, with our own uh, screens. Uh, so I will, uh, I will struggle uh, with my slides throughout the presentation. So the title here, for example, is why do we have big banks, not why, why do we have big. Um, yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Um, so the, the report goes into some exposition of what banking is and what big banks are in, uh, in, the, in modern days, because that's important to understand the possible disruption by new technology-enabled uh, competitors like fintech and big tech, which is really the topic of the report. Uh, banks engage in uh, financing. Uh, some of it is cross-border, international. There's investment banking. Uh, there is all kinds of things with asset management. Uh, but the core business of banking remains remarkably stable, and it's basically taking deposits and making loans. Uh, and we give a number of illustrations of this simple proposition uh, in, the, in the first substantial chapter, which is chapter two of the report. If you look the at the ratio of loans to total assets of banks, it's, it remains very high. The, the red line is small banks, the blue line is large banks. Uh, the uh, orange line is the median. You see that even for the largest banks, more than half of the assets are loans, uh, much more than half of the uh, liabilities are deposits, or actually as a proportion of total assets. Um, so that's even more in the liabilities if you exclude shareholders' equity. Uh, so big banks are still banks. Interest income is more than half of total income, even for the very largest banks, even more so, unsurprisingly, for the smaller banks. Uh, Non-interest income, uh, correspondingly, uh, is less than half and actually almost negligible for small banks. Uh, but even for large banks, it's, uh, it's around 40%, and it's uh, pretty stable over at least recent years for which we have this, um, 
this data set. So basically, banks are still banks for all the fancy stuff, including fee-based business and all that. Uh, they still have uh, a lot of their business model from traditional banking. Actually, 80% of revenue comes from lending and taking deposits and uh, uh, enabling payments uh, uh, from this study by McKinsey. We can discuss the details of definition, but, uh, but that's the kind of big picture. In terms of scale and scope, uh, the, so this is a bit the genealogy of the report, not that you have to be interested in that, but initially, so the questions we were asking ourselves is, do we still need big banks? Um, and does technology disruption uh, challenge big banks as opposed to smaller banks? And gradually, we came to the conclusion that it was uh, better to uh, look squarely at the disruption from fintech and big tech. But we still think this question of economies of scale and scope in banking is relevant. And here's the interesting thing is that if you look at the literature 20 years ago, um, they it was very much about economies and scale and scope are not what they're said to be, and maybe we don't need big banks and small banks uh, uh, can do the job. And you have a lot of that literature cited in critique of big banks, of too big to fail banks, uh, in books like, you know, uh, the, the reference book is probably Admati and Helvig, uh, The Banker's New Closes, which was published after the crisis. But actually, more recent studies suggest stronger evidence of economies of scale and scope, especially in terms of costs. Even so, the too-big-to-fail reforms of the post-crisis era could create incentives to uh, downsize, which is the end of the slide. Um, so you see the, the, the chart, which is the assets of the top 10 banks globally in global GDP, and you see that kind of uptick in scale from the 90s to the mid-thousands, and then it stops with the crisis, but it remains at a relatively high level. It's difficult to get a clear sense of the future direction of travel, but, uh, but we think that's relevant to the framing of the issues. Also relevant is issues of market share and market dynamics, so industrial organizations. Again, there is much more detail uh, in, the, in the report, so I don't want to uh, spend too much time on this. But basically, uh, market shares have become more persistent. Finance, and especially banking, is an area where there is less turnover of industry leaders, so there is more um, incumbency, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, than in many other sectors. Where there has been change is the last bullet point, the fact that if you look globally, the distribution of big banks has changed over time. Not surprisingly, there was a big uh, a boom and bust in Japan. That's the purple curve here. The orange curve is the Eurozone. The light blue curve is the US. And of course, the red curve is China. So if you look at these four big jurisdictions, you see that the grand total of their shares in total assets of the two, top 200 banks, which is a good proxy for the entire global banking sector, has changed quite a bit in the last uh, 30 or more uh, 40 years. But uh, those jurisdictions remark, remain remarkably dominant. And actually, uh, you can say, well, that's because that's where the GDP and economic activity is. But it's even more than that. If you look at uh, bank assets to uh, the share of total bank assets compared with the share of total GDP. So that's a way of saying which jurisdictions are kind of bank asset heavy versus bank asset light. You see that these jurisdictions, with the important exception of the U.S., are all very bank asset heavy in global comparison. So U.S. being the outlier, so the, the U.S. curve is the light blue. The rest of the world is a thin uh, uh, black line at the bottom. And you can see that these are the 
only two places where banks, uh, where, which are underrepresented in terms of global banking assets. And the other jurisdictions, China since the, since the 90s, which is remarkable, so uh, way before the credit boom of the late 2000s, the Eurozone consistently, Japan consistently with some fluctuations, the UK very consistently with uh, the pre-crisis boom, and also what we call the next five here, which are uh, uh, Australia, Canada, Switzerland, India, and Korea, uh, they're all bank asset heavy in comparison with the rest of the world and the US, which we think is an important thing to keep in mind uh, when thinking about big banks. Anyway, let's talk about competition because this is the core of our analysis. And we did a little survey uh, with market participants and again, all the details in the re report. And what this survey tells you is that the, the first area where there is competition right now is in payment services. So that's where fintech and big tech are making inroads. Probably not a surprise, but interesting to see it illustrated that way. But if you look forward, uh, there is a certain scaling uh, of other areas of core banking business where uh, competition is expected from fintech and big tech. So that's, uh, I think, one of the big takeaways from our service. There are a little bit, uh, there's a little bit more. Again, I encourage you, and that's my leitmotif, to read the report. Um, but obviously, the competition is very much in the news. Here are just a couple of clippings on uh, how you know the media attention, certainly, but not only from media, also from policymakers and from bankers, uh, the, the very high degree of attention of um, uh, about the competitions that fintech and big tech are providing, uh, seen from the core banking business. So, uh, so. I would say the analytical core of the, uh, of the report is really about anal analyzing those competitive dynamics and understanding what fintech offers. They offer speed, they offer customizations, they're digital natives, they, have, uh, 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 they don't have legacy technologies, they don't have an installed base that is incredibly complex to manage. Uh, they have uh, an ability to serve early adopters and what can be called the early majority. Uh, so the, they're digital native firms serving digital native clients, if you will. Uh, so they have all these competitive uh, advantages. Uh, the big tech has a slightly overlapping, but overall different set of competitive ad advantage because they have the enormous scale of the large platforms, right? What we uh, often call the GAFAM or GAFA uh, here in Europe. So if you think of the very largest platforms, but the same largely being true uh, in other parts of the world, particularly in China, of course, where there's a different set of big tech, particularly Tencent and Alibaba, but with some uh, uh, comparable dynamics, uh, with Chinese characteristics, of course, but there is this enormous uh, capacity to reach uh, customers, uh, to leverage some trust. We can discuss trust in big tech versus trust in banks, but there is certainly uh, an existing basis of trust uh, that can be used, and of course, an enormous amount of data uh, and, uh, and network effects. Uh, so, um, so, so that's on, on big tech, and again, all this just as a teaser for the much more um, uh, elaborate analysis uh, in the report. If you look at banks themselves, they have some advantages and some disadvantages. In terms of technology and also of customer experience, they're actually at a disadvantage very often. Not to say that banks are not adept at uh, uh, embracing new technologies. They are actually uh, typically smart adopters, but they have a legacy base. 
Uh, and uh, the customer experience is not always uh, stellar, uh, as any of us knows, actually, as bank customers. So, uh, so there is uh, competitive pressure from people who focus on those um, uh, aspects of technology and customer experience. Uh, now, of course, they have size, they have uh, network effects like big tech, but uh, not the same size. I'll come back to this. And they have some policy-based advantages and disadvantages. They are regulated, but that also provides some form of uh, uh, preferential treatment in some areas, even so it can be viewed as a disadvantage in others, starting with the fact that they have to maintain capital. Um, uh, but they also have a, a as I mentioned before, a strong connection with the political establishment and an ability to lobby with the uh, technological uh, startups, even the big techs don't necessarily have an equivalent of. So that's a very broad brush uh, view of the competitive landscape. We summarize it in this table. I will not comment it all. Again, um, have I said that, uh, that I encourage you to read the report? Anyway, uh, I, I, I will say that again. So let's come to the conclusions and the uh, last chapter, which is about prospects and policy choices, which is probably what you're most interested in. And clearly, uh, we're quite modest, actually. We're not predicting a particular future because this story is moving too fast. And even in the course of preparing the report, we had Libra coming up. We had a lot of other news coming up, uh, even as we were you know, finalizing the manuscript. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it, it happens that Tara, uh, in her capacity in the uh, CPMI, uh, is working a lot on Libra. So she knew about that. Uh, but, uh, but, but, uh, but still, I mean, uh, uh, there is something new every day. And we're, 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 we're not pretending we have um, uh, knowledge of the future. What we know is, in a way, known unknowns. There are things we uh, don't know yet precisely, which is how technologies will evolve, how banks will embrace technology, how the competition will choose to interact with the bank, for example. Of course, customer preferences is still uh, very unclear in many areas. You know how sticky is the customer's commitment to the bank as opposed to embracing a, a newcomer. And last, but from my perspective, certainly not least, how a public policy will respond. And, uh, and my conclusion uh, will be about this, because I think uh, there are a number of essential choices that will be made inevitably by public policymakers, but haven't been made yet. And from these choices uh, will uh, result a lot of uh, future outcomes. So it's not just about strategic decisions by the banks, the fintechs, the big techs. It's not just about customer choices and preferences. It's also about public policy decisions. Um, now, a, a kind of another running theme of the report is that there have been evolutions or even revolutions before, and there has been challenges to the established position of banks in the past. Online banking and challenger banks are not entirely new. We explained the example of Wingspan Bank uh, in the report, but even if you go further back in time, Money market funds were a big challenge much further back into the 19th century, actually. Cooperative banks, savings banks, uh, credit unions, and the like were created typically outside as a, so of the banking sector as a challenger. Now, especially in the European uh, framework, we call them banks, and they're regulated as banks. In the US, credit unions still have a separate uh, regulatory and supervisory framework, but, uh, but, but initially they were challengers. So uh, banks 
collectively, if not necessarily individually, have been very resilient and good at preserving their particular place uh, in the uh, economic um, architecture and financial architecture. And, uh, and we expect that to a large uh, extent to continue. There are reasons why this time might be different including the fact that big tech are really big, I'll come back to this, but uh, there are also reasons to believe that you know, this will not be uh, the disappearance of banks like the dinosaurs disappeared in a mass extinction. So these are, um, these are elements of, you know, the banks are a bit less impressive as a, as a collective bunch as they were before the crisis. This is price to book ratio, and as we know, particularly in Europe, but also elsewhere, there hasn't been full recovery. Um, uh, all the charts, of course, are in the report. There is some indication, this is Thomas Philippon's uh, cutting-edge research on the unique cost of finance, that, uh, that after a long period of stagnation, at least in the US, financial firms are providing better value for money to their customers, but this is still very tentative. Generally speaking, the financial industry and the banking industry have not been great under at least that kind of research methodology at improving their value for money proposition, um, to put it very holistically. But the point I would say, putting about uh, you know big tech being really big, is this: uh, you look at the simplistic indicator of market capitalization, and you have big tech on the left-hand side and uh, big banks on the right-hand side. Aside, and big banks really aren't that big uh, if you compare them to both the U.S. big tech, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, but also the Chinese big tech, especially the biggest two, Alibaba and Tencent. So, um, so, so there, there is here a magnitude of challenge in terms of new players that is indeed unprecedented. So this, this, had, this kind of chart wasn't there uh, in the previous episodes of banks being challenged. Now, big tech for now have not sold banking licenses in the West. They have in China. Uh, but even in China, most of their lending is actually through non-bank operations. Um, and there is still this principle of separation of banking and commerce, which is still very uh, formalized in the US, a bit less formalized in Europe. But in Europe, there is a concern about the uh, US big tech, which in a way plays a similar role, which uh, results in a reluctance to see them uh, uh, embracing uh, core banking business. Uh, and of course, there are uh, issues like open banking, uh, data portability, GDPR in Europe, uh, which have an impact on all these issues. And as you know, they're a fast-moving bunch of issues. So um, Libra has been a wake-up call on a number of those dimensions. In that sense, we think it's been very helpful to the discussion about policy, uh, because it raises a lot of big questions in a much more immediate and bigger way than any of the other project, including Bitcoin uh, frenzy, uh, Libra has uh, gotten policymakers much more powerfully outside of their comfort zone, if you want to put it that way. Um, so uh, we're not predicting that Libra itself will happen or become a thing, uh, but, uh, but the discussion triggered by Libra is very significant and is about a lot of the real issues. So, so we uh, detail that a bit. Um, we also spent some time thinking about uh, supervisory architecture. 
Uh, and uh, whether the global architecture is up to the task, there are pressures towards fragmentation across jurisdictions, and we've seen a lot of that in the last 10 years, including inside the Eurozone, intra-Eurozone financial fragmentation, which is or isn't solved at the current stage of banking union. But if you look at it from a global perspective, uh, we have had this uh, tension, which Stéphane Rotier and I uh, had uh, tried to analyze in a Bruegel paper nine years ago, between the re-regulation of the system resulting from the crisis and the vision of a globally integrated financial system. And there is an inherent friction between those two. So we discussed that in the context of technology-driven business models um, uh, in the report. And basically, our conclusion is that policymakers should not shy away from institutional experimentation, maybe on a small scale, but should not start from the uh, uh, priors that any supervision that's not strictly on the basis of existing jurisdictions is impossible, because actually the lesson of your European experience, both with banking union, but also with direct supervision by ESMA of some uh, uh, market uh, infrastructure, for example, trade repositories, I should always say that I'm an independent non-executive director of one of the trade repositories, um, is, uh, is a proof that things that were considered impossible before the crisis in terms of supranational supervision have actually become uh, a tangible reality now in Europe. And so if that has happened in Europe, I'm not saying the world is Europe writ large, it's not, but it's possible to think on a regional basis, maybe for some data intermediaries, of course, uh, uh, for example, on a global basis, to imagine some new experimentation that would make sense. So this is my last slide. Um, I've always almost made it in 20 minutes, not quite. Um, so momentous transformation, uh, we're still at early stage, it's difficult to be sure of anything. The disruption in our collective view is likely to fall short of the mass extinction of all banks. But still, I mean, it's a big deal, and public policy choices will be uh, critical. Financial authorities, of course, must embrace new technologies. They should not be left behind. This is an important uh, organizational, operational issue for financial regulators, supervisors, and policymakers. Uh, there will obviously be different per preferences in different jurisdictions, but when you think of the really big picture, we think there's a lot to say about the need for new modes of financial oversight. The, the one uh, at the end of the slide is the one I just mentioned, supranational experimentation beyond what's ongoing in the EU. But there is also this very important issue that uh, authorities that are in charge of financial stability will have to work more with complementary uh, public authorities in areas such as competition, which is so much familiar in Europe with stated control, less so in other parts of the world, but also a completely new area, which is data regulators. And, uh, and uh, we still are struggling to know what data regulation will look like in the future. In Europe, it's incipient with the implementation of GDPR. In other parts of the world, it's even at an earlier stage. But we know that probably data regulators will become a thing, and probably a big thing, in the next 10 years. And so financial authorities will have to work with data regulators. They will have to work with competition authorities, especially to understand the role of big tech. And this is something that will take them massively outside of their comfort zone, because their comfort zone is, to put it bluntly, Basel. And those people are not in Basel. Uh, so, uh, so, so we see challenges which are operational, also cultural, and of course political, uh, in this area in terms of future policy. I'll stop there and look forward to the discussion. Thank you so much.
thank you for that overview. When you talk about traditional finance being left behind, I have this image of a bunch of bankers standing around looking at empty shoes of everyone else who's been absorbed into the cloud. Um, until the rapture comes, financial or otherwise, we have quite a lot of room to discuss what's happening next. We have Tunis Brosens from ING, and we also have Sam Tosik from Cabbage, who we met a moment ago, who will give us some brief thoughts in response to Nicolas' thoughts. We will have a little bit of back and forth on the panel, um, hoping to keep the answers a little bit pithy, keep things moving along, and then we will move it to your questions. Um, the more questions you have, the better the discussion is. So while you're listening, think about your question. If you can, think about how to pose it as a question so we can get a little bit of debate and dialogue going on up here. Thanks very much. Tennis? Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks, Nicholas, for this, this great report and this great summary. I think uh, uh, Nicholas was very humble not to mention it, but it's really a report that you should read from the first page to the last page because it's, it's, it's quite good. I, I uh, think I should have written a light motif to go along with this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so maybe, maybe a few points to, uh, to highlight. Uh, I, I very much agree with the point that I think that regulators should and supervisors should coordinate both more uh, within their sector at the global level and also beyond their own sector with other regulators uh, like competition and, and data. Um, I, I found it a, a very defining moment, for example, when I think it was in July when the, there were a number of worldwide uh, uh, data uh, protection authorities that together wrote a response to Libra and said, these are the demands that we have for Libra that it should comply with. And I think this is, this is the example of, of uh, how things should move forward. Um, suppose in the theoretical case that you don't have time to read the report as a whole and, and God forbid you only read the executive summary and the conclusion, then you will find in the conclusion, which, which I found very fascinating, that it first says in the conclusion, yes, banks will always be around, uh, banks have regulatory experience, they are, well, like you said, they, they have a sort of symbiotic relationship with governments, so they won't go away uh, anytime soon. But, next paragraph, uh, they in fact may uh, uh, face very tough competition by big tech, so maybe things do change. So it's sort of a, uh, uh, two thoughts there, and well, I think this is a, a, a place where we all are at the moment, that it can go either way, and we are really at a point where both the actions of banks, the actions of big techs, and as you rightly indicate, the actions of policymakers and regulators can define which scenario uh, we will take going forward. Uh, maybe one little footnote there. I think one, one question, and you already uh, touched upon that as well, is um, the question, are big techs even willing to become banks? So are they willing to, be, to obtain a banking license? Uh, and first of all, I think they may not need to, because like in China, uh, they can basically offer most, if not all, of banking services without actually becoming a bank. Um, and that raises all kinds of new issues, because financial supervision, uh, both microprudential and macroprudential, is geared towards banks. Uh, and if new banking-like services are being offered not by banks, but by other institutions, and that demands a response from financial supervision. But it also demands a response from a financial stability perspective. And because I think we're quite not there yet in Europe, uh, but in China it's a different matter. Um, uh, new streams and new exposures may develop outside the banking sector. 
The second reason why uh, big techs uh, may not uh, want to become a bank is uh, why would they, not, would they not leave the plumbing of the financial system to the banks and uh, take uh, the primary customer relationship themselves because the value is there, is in your interaction with the customer. That's where the data is. That's where uh, you get to know the customer and uh, where you can build the platform, which is what the big techs are good at. Uh, and why not leave all the nitty-gritty of uh, actually doing the transactions and actually complying with all this difficult regulation, both from a prudential perspective and KYC, AML, leave that uh, to the banks. Um, so I think that's a big question mark. Well, is all hope lost then for the banks? Uh, I don't think so. Yes, uh, banks may lag behind in sheer power, in sheer financial power, in data analytics power. They may be held back by legacy technology. However, there's still time. Because, indeed, people still, I mean, they may not like the banking sector, but in the end, people still trust their own bank with their money. If you ask people, would you trust a social media firm with your money or would you trust a bank, then most people say, I prefer my bank. And this may change over time, and I think China shows us that, that it may take a few years, but it may change and new generations may make different choices. But at least banks have still time while they still have this trust uh, to innovate and to change. Banks have their experience with regulation, um, uh, so yes, there's time for banks still to, uh, uh, to innovate. Uh, I do think uh, it's important from a regulatory perspective uh, to have a level playing field uh, of competition between banks and big techs. Um, a few examples there, this data is becoming ever more important. We currently have PSD2, which means that if a big tech uh, a big tech can invite their users to uh, um, uh, ask their bank to provide the data held by the bank to the big tech, uh, but not the other way around, eh, which puts the banks at a disadvantage there because they cannot ask um, the data that big techs hold on clients. Uh, so I think one, one way to, um, to help establish a level playing field is to basically strive for a uh, a data sharing framework that is truly cross-sectoral and that extends to not only to big tech but in the end maybe to all uh, sectors. Um, maybe not to talk too long, uh, a few final points. I think, um, yeah, maybe one final point then. I think um, also in, in, in light of uh, level playing fields, uh, innovation. Uh, I, think, um, I think basically the supervisory framework for fintechs and big techs is quite adequate at the moment because they can scale up from, well, let's stay in the payments area because that's where most of stuff is happening. And they can scale up from being a payment institution to an e-money institution and then finally becoming a bank. Uh, and, and so that, that, that the regulatory, the licensing scheme scales up together with the fintech activity. Um, at the same time, when a bank wants to innovate and when a bank wants to develop the same activity that a standalone fintech does, then this activity is immediately subject to the full banking license and the full uh, policies uh, that a bank has to apply internally uh, uh, to comply with the banking license. And then the answer that you often hear is we need to move to a framework of activity-based licensing, right? Same activity, same risk, same rules. And I think your report rightly mentions well, that may be nice, but in the end, it's not activities that fail, it's entities that fail. So there is definitely a case to keep a, a base form of entity-based supervision, and I see that point. However, I do make the plea of within that framework, create more room for activities that do not pose big prudential risks to a parent bank to create more room... Uh, 
in, in the regulatory regime for such an innovation to, to blossom and uh, to have, well, a more temporary, easily regulatory regime. And I don't have a blueprint how you could go about this, but I think it's definitely something that we should look into, not only for the benefit of banks, but basically to the wider benefit of the European economy and building the digital single market. And you are looking at the time, so I will stop here for now. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. Sam? Th these are very progressive views from a bank. <laughs> um, well, thank you all for coming today. My name is Sam Tausig, I'm head of global policy for Cabbage. Just some background on what Cabbage uh, does, which may provide some additional perspective. In the United States for the past uh, nine years or so, Cabbage has been operating as an online small business credit platform. We will qualify a, uh, a bakery, an auto mechanic, other types of small businesses like that in about seven to 10 minutes for a line of credit between 2000 dollars and $250,000. Uh, we leverage their underlying cash flow data and other non-traditional business data to, to understand performance in real time. Um, and in the United States, by the end of this year, we'll have deployed about $3 billion. We're also moving into payments to compete directly with Square and PayPal and Stripe on payments acceptance in person and online, and working with other companies to uh, create a cabbage-branded deposits program. Abroad, we've operated in Canada, Mexico, the United Kingdom, all over the European Union, and, have, and are looking at other countries. In those markets, we work with banks, um, working with their underwriting models, essentially, to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to underwrite customers in real time. And we also developed programs with banks to create brand new products uh, specific to small business credit services. And, and additionally, in the United States, we work with BBVA and a, uh, and a separate brand to bring Main Street financing um, in real time to small businesses as they incur uh, different sort of cash flow needs. And so, when we look at the three legs of the banking stool here, we typically agree that um, the future of banks does not it is not going to represent some sort of empty carcass of, of institutions. I think uh, our friends at ING should take comfort that they'll have jobs for quite a while, but those jobs will begin to look different. We do feel from the fintech perspective and, and also from the American perspective, frankly, that banks are moving more towards a utility function where uh, fintech firms or big tech firms will be able to rely on the rails, the regulated rails of that bank to make payments, take deposits under some sort of brand, whether it's a cabbage brand um, or you know, maybe in the future a Facebook brand, and uh, make loans in a way that is much more productive and efficient for the, the customer or the consumer, and frankly is a better user experience. And so I also represent the millennial view here today. And when we look at millennial trends with technology, we're looking at um, an engagement platform, really. We, we in the United States live and die in technology world by this, this score called NPS. It's the net promoter score. Is anybody here familiar with that? Okay, uh, one or two hands. What the net promoter score represents is basically your uh, your willingness as a consumer to refer that product or service to a friend of yours, essentially. Um, banks today in the United States hover around 20 to 25 NPS. To give you a little bit of perspective there, the iPhone and Apple 
typically hover between 80 to 95, depending on the segment of the population you ask. And that's really important. Um, as we talk about scaling, which, which you know, back to 1923, the president of the American Bankers Association said that scale is everything. When we talk about efficiency and we talk about uh, mass markets, that NPS score is really important. So I look at this and say, um, you know, a bank in the future for cabbage or any other fintech or a big tech uh, is going to be the regulatory base. On top of the regulatory base, I think that's where the innovative technology marketplace begins to flourish. And we have competition around the onboarding, around the ease of application, around pricing or dynamic pricing, and around the overall experience and, frankly, the customer experience that can be offered uh, that today in, in many markets, including Europe, um, as I've talked to some people before this about opening up European bank accounts, is simply not being offered. I, I do want to push back and say that um, maybe we don't want to leave the KYC and, and OFAC controls and things like that to a bank. I think that if you look at, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'm just obsessive about acronym. Ah, yes, KYC, uh, know your customer. Um, essentially, the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism uh, regulations, controls, and checks to make sure that whomever is opening the account is actually the person that you think they are. Um, we have left well, these. Back is the Office of Foreign Assets Control is the U.S. Treasury's money laundering arm. Sanctions. Yes. Excuse me. We've we've left these regulations and controls traditionally to. Uh, the financial institutions with pillars and brand names that we all know. Um, but banks are not necessarily well suited to understand you at all. Many banks grow through acquisition, which means that their data sets are not united or uniform. Many banks do not have uh, a holistic understanding of your transaction history and your patterns if you have multiple accounts. Banks, moreover, don't understand exactly what your digital identity looks like because you as a consumer probably only interact with your bank when you absolutely need to, not on a continual or ongoing basis. And so as we look at the ability to onboard and understand uh, anti-money laundering risk or uh, other sort of you know, know your customer risks, I think we should look at fintech firms. We should look at the big data economy. And I think Libra will pose an interesting question, maybe not the solution, but an interesting question uh, with central bankers and other prudential regulators to say, can a non-bank safely and efficiently really tell financial services professionals whether or not you're a terrorist or a money launderer or that you are who you say you are when you say you are? Uh, at the time of the transaction. My belief, and Cabbage's belief, is that the technology and data-driven side of this will do that better and, frankly, be more inclusive for communities that have struggled with those kind of checks on the margins for a variety of reasons. Thank you very much. We will now have just a little bit of back and forth among the panelists. If I could ask our organizers to leave everybody's mics up so that we can have a very rapid back and forth rather than having people sort of end down and, and wrap up. I think that'll help. And then we'll be looking forward to hearing your questions. As, a, as the cynical Gen Xer on the panel, I had so many thoughts listening to all of these things. We were just talking about the algorithm, so I'll start there. Um, what about redlining? One thing that we've found is that algorithms can learn existing prejudices very, very quickly and enforce them even more strongly than people can. So how do you, how do you regulate around that? Absolutely. Um, 
algorithms, it, it's, it's a math problem. So you're solving for a math problem. So any regulatory solution should also solve for the math problem. Uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, really we like to say AI is not a real thing yet. Um, so let's call it machine learning and the associated algorithms. They are completely auditable um, because they are consistent. And so one might say, okay, fine. Do we really want to subject X number of citizens to potential redlining? Uh, before a regulator can catch it. And my answer to that would be, no, of course not. That's your last step. When we look at this question of kind of the future of machine learning um, regulation, Europe has uh, by far and away led the pack. There's a huge uh, AI subcommission or whatever you guys call it here um, being led by the EC to explore essentially how do we create a framework for model governance and robust testing that ensures that disparate impact and disparate treatment do not happen inside of a model output, a model output equation. And to do that, um, I, I do believe that we need clear and consistent rules of the roads and standards set both by uh, you know, prudential regulators and um, with input from industry. But at the end of the day, uh, it should be uh, measured on outputs. And so in the United States, at least, we have spent a lot of time measuring inputs in, in algorithms and, and machine learning uh, programs and models, which I think is basically erroneous. It's, it's misleading um, and, frankly, the wrong way. Any sort of data can produce a bias or produce a proxy. Um, if you give a data science team, a mathematician, a thousand attribute sets on a person, and by the way, um, uh, your credit card company is Visa, American Express, MasterCard, Discover, et cetera. Um, they have about 1,300 data points on you as an individual um, throughout the course of your... So your you're saying we're being profiled already and it's not looking great. No, no, no. I, I'm saying that that data is there. But if you give a data scientist 1,000 data points and say, you know, find me some sort of bias in this, they'll absolutely be able to do it. Whether or not it's used in a specific model or transaction, I think is completely... Uh, is really completely dependent on the outcome of that transaction. So you think the regulators should be able to look at the outputs and nag people to do a better job? I do. Nicola, let me ask you this. You talk a lot in your summary of y'all's report about the existing banks around the world versus the tech that's coming. You didn't touch on competition within the banks, both regionally and just in the industry. It's hard for me to see the banks all lining up on the same side if they're busy trying to undercut each other. Uh, yes and no. I think uh, in, if you look at public policy debates, for example, you can see, uh, for lack of a better word, word uh, lobbying coalitions uh, of banks. If you look at the one jurisdiction where the experience is most advanced, which is obviously China, um, now, China is special, and I'm not saying that the rest of the world is the same, but you, you, you've seen really the banks uh, being on one side of the debate, even as they do compete with each other. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I'm, uh, I say that in full awareness of the specificities of the, the Chinese political system and market. Um, but, but I think this view that there is a banking sector on the one hand, there is a disruption from big tech, on the other hand, there's fintech, which is a third party with, uh, which doesn't have the scale, but is uh, important and interesting to keep in the scope of observation. 
um, uh, because of all the advantages that uh, Sam has uh, summarized and that uh, I've also touched on, I think that kind of very simplistic way of looking at the landscape actually does make sense at the current juncture. So it's simplistic, we accept that, but, uh, but, but take any big lobbying issues uh, or big policy issue uh, in that space and you will see the bank's positions being relatively homogeneous. Hmm. So looking at this report... Some of them are more progressive than others. <laughs> <laughs> looking at this report on the website, one thing that jumped out at me was a quote, I believe, from Tara Rice saying, uh, you know, one of the things we saw is that the banks could make some breathing room for themselves by cutting their fees because a lot of the interest in fintech is from people who make cross-border payments and the fees are kind of outrageous and they would like to find a way around that. Can you talk about fees and particularly fees for the poorer and more underbanked consumer? Because we all know that if you're rich, you can bank for free because people love to have your money. But fintech is coming for the people who are working on a smaller scale who are paying lots of money for wire transfers, lots of money for currency conversions. So what about those folks? And then also, what about the banks making money off them? Because the banks will say, look, interest rates are low. We got to serve our high custom quality customers for free. We got to make some money somehow from our riskier activities. Yeah, I, I find it difficult to answer that question for the banking sector as a whole, because there are obviously big differences between uh, uh, continents, uh, but also, also within Europe. Um, but, but when you zoom in into the... Uh, the payment systems and especially the cross-border payment system because there most of the disruption is going on. Uh, I think uh, fees may be part of the problem or part of the reason that there's opportunity for, uh, for fintechs to step in and do a better job uh, at a lower cost. Um, uh, but I think from a bank's perspective, it's not just about fees. Uh, this is about the correspondent banking system uh, uh, basically being a slow system, a system which takes up a lot of liquidity, a system which is uh, slowed down by uh, opening hours across the world, uh, a system with, which finds it uh, a challenge to do AML uh, KYC because there are many checks uh, involved. So. And when you look at the payment system, and especially the cross-border payment system, it's, it's, yes, fees are part of the story there, but it's really a, a really story of, of reforming the entire infrastructure uh, and bringing that to the 21st century. All right. Do you guys disagree with each other on anything so far? I think that regulators um, can play a larger role in, in making sure that certain populations that have flocked to fintech can actually access financial services in, much more, in a much more equitable way. Uh, Bangladesh has about 60-some-odd um, 60 banks. There's also 34 licensed non-banks, and the only difference is uh, how those uh, non-banks can actually operate in the international currency system. But for the average Bangladeshi that's not necessarily sending lots of money abroad, um, they don't really care. And so they flock to these 34 non-banks because the, the government has opened up basically a regulatory regime that says, we're going to regulate you for you know, inter-country payments, and that's it, or we're going to regulate you for some basic deposit holding. And because of the the fintechs, if you will, or the challenger banks in Bangladesh have been able to focus on those very specific activities. They've cut the fat out from the rest of the business model and have been able to compete with the 60 large banks in Bangladesh and charge incredibly 
low fees to hold deposits um, or move money inside of the country. If you have a different use case, yes, you open up to a different risk parameter as well, and I think that's still being developed. Bangladesh has asked kind of the international monetary system um, to ease up on some of the rules and has been working with SWIFT on that. Uh, but they have kind of the general populace in mind for that, more so, I think, than, than other regulators in the region have. I think there's an interesting pattern here uh, of authorities using the competitive pressure from fintech and possibly also from big tech in order to move the banks on something that they think the banks have to change their behavior. And you see probably that more in emerging markets than in advanced economies, um, or what we call advanced economies. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a fascinating example of that in China, which we analyze in the report, which is how the Chinese authorities have encouraged the development of um, fund management provided by big tech. So the Yubao fund of Alibaba, which is probably familiar with some of you, specifically as a way to force change in the way banks offer uh, saving services. Uh, and that's been very successful in terms of pushing the industry, which is politically powerful, to change its behavior on something that the regulators uh, thought was uh, important. Interesting. Questions? All right, we got one here. One here from Matthias. Do we have a mic moving around? All right, you shout, I'll repeat the question. <laughs> you would probably need a microphone for the video. Ah, uh, right, yes. You should wait for it. Thank you, and uh, thank you in particular, Nicholas, for mentioning dinosaurs. I uh, left American Express, where I represented them here for 10 years, exactly 25 years ago. Since when I've been running uh, your active for the last 15 years, so I've not been entirely unoccupied. Um, but when I studied economics an even longer time ago, there was a thing called supply and demand. And you've talked a lot about increasing supply. What I don't see is much evidence, or maybe there is, but you haven't highlighted it, in terms of lower prices, better productivity, and more safety. Any comments? All right, let's get up a second question from uh, back row there. Can, Stefan, can you pass that back, please? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mathias de Watripon from uh, ECARES. Um, well, thanks a lot for uh, this very interesting uh, set of uh, interventions. Uh, one thing I wanted to, uh, to ask you was, and some people were a bit, uh, I guess, uh, optimistic about, you know, this is progress, technology and so on. Now, uh, coming more from the regulatory side, uh, the way I would think about fintech and big tech would be like, you know, it's like shadow banks. Uh, I know shadow banks are not always uh, uh, enjoying a very positive, uh, positive image, but, you know, it's about exploiting market inefficiencies and whatever and bringing new things. And, of course, taking advantage a bit uh, of, the, uh, of uh, the regulatory framework, which is entangling the, the existing players. Uh, now, from that point of view, I think looking at how the FSB is looking at uh, shadow banks, uh, it says, okay, let's allow them to, to work, but uh, they, shouldn't, uh, uh, they shouldn't be an unlevel playing field. Uh, if it looks like a bank, maybe you should regulate it like a bank. And, uh, and then you should also worry about <clears throat> the fact that they may abuse 
banks, uh, because banks are indeed liquid animals, because uh, they take advantage of uh, central banks and so on. And then you have this uh, possible uh, implicit commitment of banks to go and help uh, these other guys. So should we think of, uh, of uh, the way to regulate uh, fintech, big tech on the, uh, versus banks, like uh, you know, the, the Vickers Commission about ring fencing and the like, to make sure that uh, externalities uh, are, are not there? Because otherwise, uh, the, uh, maybe we should do like, uh, like uh, Admati Helvig calls them 20% equity in that division and uh, stuff like that. Or is that uh, too conservative and not progressive enough? All right, we'll take one third question up here. Reminder, if you can keep your questions short, we can have better answers. Not a criticism of any questions that have come, just a general comment. Stasinopoulos, <laughs> formerly the European Commission. Uh, there is no doubt that the big tech companies have uh, deep pockets and also, uh, more important, they have uh, more access to data than any bank. Uh, so, do we have any evidence that somehow the big tech companies that they want to get in with the banks uh, are involved with data intermediation or do they have the the intention to do that. And if the answer is yes, do we need uh, somehow, that's my question, a robust, I would say, data governance framework to, to regulate Thank you. So we have a question on specific governance of specifically financial data and financial data sharing. We have a question about customer service generally. Why don't people love their banks? Why aren't they getting lower fees and better services? And then this wonderful question about shadow banking and sort of the flip side of activity-based licensing was how I interpreted that. If people are acting like a bank, should there be limits if they're not regulated like a bank? Should they be literally cordoned off from the system so they don't jeopardize financial stability? So. Sam, we'll just, we'll just move around this way. I'll try to take a, a general stab that might cover all three of those questions. Um, bankers love to ask for this level playing field concept, and I've never really understood what that means. Uh, will Cabbage get access to central bank windows in that case? Uh, that'd be nice. That'd be a level playing field. But, but joking aside, I think in the, con in the context of data, governance frameworks and data protection, as you brought up earlier, yes. By all means, I think there should be a level playing field uh, that has some maybe small uh, uh, use case or industry um, specifications for the use of data. But for the most part, if it's sensitive data, PII, whatever you want to use your term, um, yes, we should have clear rules of the road that are, that are for the most part principles-based and can develop with, uh, with time and technology. But the reason um, that I think that's important versus the rest of the playing field is the rest of the financial playing field doesn't necessarily add up to the same risk. So if I were policymaker king for a day or whatever, my ask would be regulate institutions, whether banks, non-banks, fintechs, bank partnership, bank holding companies, whatever, for the actual risk they present to the system and for the customer. And so if you're an institution that does not engage in deposit taking and has no liability from a taxpayer, you should not be held to uh, regulatory frameworks or standards that- uh, I feel like I saw that movie with Lehman Brothers. 
Well, that's... I mean, they didn't take any deposits, and they weren't banks. Sure. Um, and I would argue that what we're looking at here in fintech is, is slightly different, right? Um, we're looking at... Uh, first of all, you know, let me finish my sentence. <laughs> um, I, I, th I thought we should have some back and forth. No, 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 absolutely. So what I'm asking for here is... I, if I don't want to be, I don't want to be a bank, right? And I don't want to be a bank because I don't want to be held to deposit-taking standards by, in our case, the the uh, Federal Reserve, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in the United States. Um, what I do want is a national payment and a national lending license, and I will submit as cabbage to any sort of regulatory framework that protects the taxpayer, the economy at whole, and my specific customers from whatever risks we present. What I don't want to do is say, well, we don't know how to do that because we've never thought about it. Um, and therefore, any fintech that wants to engage in two of the three legs of the stool has to go get uh, a license or a charter to engage in all three, whether or not you use the third or not. I think that hampers innovation. And the reason that's important, if I want to specialize in one two, or two legs of the stool, but not three, is the core competency piece. So to the gentleman's question about um, somewhat to supply and demand, banks want to serve, in our case, small business customers. Um, in most cases, they can't below a certain dollar threshold, $500,000 um, for working capital loans for some larger banks, $250,000 for regional and community banks. The marginal and fixed cost of underwriting for them is far too great. Small businesses, and we only serve small businesses, will always have a demand for credit when they see a return on their investment. Um, and, and banks simply today cannot offer the smaller dollar or dynamic credit products that serve that need in a time frame that is suitable for those small businesses. Uh, if we can cut out some of the, in many cases, overburdensome regulation that uh, does not have anything to do with the business of making loans or, or moving or um, paying checks, uh, we can begin to focus on those areas for customers and meet the actual demands or dynamic, uh, dynamic credit needs. Nicola? I think the, the, the exchange shows how complicated this issue is. So it's not just, you know, there are banks and there are non-banks which are shadow banks. Uh, there's a vast multiplicity of situations. Indeed, uh, there is a case for several types of licenses. And we have that to a certain extent in Europe because we have banking licenses and then we have uh, investment firms. Uh, but we have a pretty broad definition of a bank. So uh, the European definition of a bank does include Lehman. Um, in the US, there's, they have a different starting point where a bank is a depository institution. And then there are specialized licenses for other kinds of things like individual in industrial loan companies mm -hmm. and ad hoc entities like Fannie and Freddie and things like that. So uh, it's difficult to generalize this discussion because there is this multiplicity of starting points. There is this multiplicity of business models. Some of them are leading to different kinds yeah. of systemic risks. So, so I think... Um, despite the frustrating uh, nature of just saying, you know, you know it's complicated, um, it, it actually uh, doesn't lead itself to a simple black and white narrative, shadow banks bad, have to be regulated like banks. 
I think it's very interesting to revisit the debate about financial stability that the uh, financial stability community was having just before the last big crisis. So I'm thinking, you know, 13, 14 years ago, uh, think back to, for those of you who were <laughs> born at that time, you know, 2005, 2006, you went to a financial stability conference, what was it about? Uh, interestingly, a lot of it was about hedge funds and private equity. And uh, people were saying, oh my God, they're very big. Uh, they're, uh, they look very much like banks in many ways. They're a risk to financial stability. Look what happened. We had a crisis just afterwards. So crisis was largely about banks. In Europe, it was almost entirely about banks. Uh, even in the US, where a number of non-bank entities, uh, you know, asset-backed commercial paper vehicles and the like, uh, were a financial stability problem. Ultimately, it was because they were backed by the banks. Hedge funds and private equity were uh, shock absorbers, not shock amplificators. So the financial stability community had it entirely wrong. Why is that? Maybe it has to do with cognitive uh, biases. Maybe it has to do with bank lobbying. Uh, wouldn't rule it out. What about the bank sovereign link? I mean, here in Europe, you hear Maybe. about hedge funds as speculators hurting our banks, well, not as and, shock and, absorbers. And in Europe, I think you also have the views that you know hedge funds and private equity funds tend to be Anglo-Saxons. They uh, threaten our national champions. We don't control them because they are controlled by Yanks. Uh, so there is, a, there, there, is, there is a mix of different considerations here. And, and, and again, I wouldn't want to be simplistic. I'm just saying I think it's very important that the Financial Stability Board, the regulatory community, is looking at the issue of shadow banks. And there is an issue there. And we learned that with, as I said, you know, especially investment vehicles, asset-backed commercial paper conduits. You remember the acronyms of the early phase of the crisis. But let's not forget the big picture. The last crisis was largely about banks in Europe because our financial system is largely about banks. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so we shouldn't uh, you know, keep our eye off the ball. Now, there was a, a question about data rights. And, and, and I, I want to say how much we're at an early stage, how much we don't have the concepts to think about data ownership, data portability, data privacy, uh, in a way that's as organized as other categories of our policy thinking. And I think all these issues are massively important, uh, but uh, we, we will look back at today in, say, five or ten year times and wonder at how uh, crude and uh, unsophisticated our thinking about data rights was. Uh, so, so basically, I'm, uh, I'm displaying my cluelessness here. Uh, but I think the issue of data regulation and data rights is one we know will become big. We know that there will be very powerful public authorities in charge of data rights and enforcement, but we don't know what form it will take yet. And that's a great point about portability. Oh, sorry, Sam, you wanted to throw something out. No, I was just going to add that uh, you know Europe is far more advanced in the data rights and privacy conversation than we are in the U.S. Um, some very bright person once said, uh, explaining um, the European perspective on privacy to an American is like an American trying to explain the Second Amendment, the, the right to bear arms to a European. Um, it's just passing ships in the night. 
But I do think that there are some um, market and cultural... Except if they're American, it's Californian, right? Yeah, well... <laughs> that, they're bringing public banking back, too. That's true. <laughs> um, and, and pot banking. But um, the, I think there are some very important market and cultural factors that, that we're leaving out from this data governance, privacy, data security debate. Um, different cultures view privacy and data security differently, and different consumers in those markets have different demands. You know, when Amazon announced that they were thinking about going into healthcare and creating this joint venture um, with a couple other companies in the United States, I had two thoughts uh, parallel in my mind. One of them was, ooh, that's really scary. I'm not sure that Amazon, uh, you know, having my health data and my Amazon purchases would be great in the long run. But at the same time, the user experience is so great, I was thinking, gosh, when can I sign up? Um, when you look at Asian cultures, even in some cases the South American cultures, the value of personal data and the willingness to compromise is a very different economic equation in different markets for different consumers. And I don't think as a public policy um, you know, body or society we've given that enough thought in terms of how we'll value it in different parts of the world and you know, what importance that should bear in the debate. In the U.S. and the U.K., you see surveys routinely where people say, God, I hate the customer service at my bank, and the only thing I hate more is the idea of changing my bank and having to fill out all the forms and everything. Um, Tenants, ING has been one of the nimbler banks. I mean, with ING Direct, with the FinTech Village, with all the different things going on. Can you maybe take that? Maybe you could even talk about pot banking, cannabis banking. Um, but can you pull some of these threads together and give us a different perspective? Well, I... I was thinking indeed about uh, the shadow banking, fintech versus banks, and I, I very much agree with what Nicholas said, uh, it's complicated. Uh, I also think that the focus on should entities be regulated as banks, or maybe even a fintech saying don't regulate us as a bank because we aren't, I think probably in a few years' time, or I think we should frame this question differently uh, because we are seeing already right now uh, that banking is being unbundled and that's what the fintechs do. They take one item and they specialize, become very good at it. And so you see that, that the bank was, was and is an institution that offers a lot of ser uh, services in one place, uh, but that may not be the future. And so I think we really should, should start to focus on those activities and those entities and what risks do they pose to the financial system, uh, what regulation, prudential, but also consumer protection, what data regulation applies to that. Uh, and, and you see already some of that thinking, and, and for example, the Bank of England has granted uh, access to central bank money for fintechs. Uh, I believe Switzerland as well. And so you see central banks indeed pondering, well, wait a minute, uh, and this uh, access to central bank money was a, uh, uh, something that only banks had, but maybe, maybe yeah. it's time to change that. So I think this is really the, the, the uh, debate moving forward. Uh, but I think really, yeah, we, maybe we should let go of the frame that the bank is sort of the ultimate, most tightly regulated institution, but we really should look at activities um, uh, individually. We have more questions? Got one over here, and we got one from Stefan. Sorry, I should have done this the other way with the microphone. Um, Jack Schickler from MLAX. If I could just pick up on the point you raised at the end there about the role of central banks. Um, uh, Mark Carney and, and other central bankers have raised the idea of launching their own cryptocurrency, perhaps as some kind of rival to Libra. 
Um, which makes me think as a humble bank customer, you know, why would I bother having an account at the high street bank if I could have one at the central bank, uh, which would be surely more secure. And if it can all be done online, um, possibly as simple. Um, so I wondered, you know, is that, is that what, what's the role of central banks in this kind of disruption? Um, is that a good idea to launch their own kind of cryptocurrency? Um, how should they do it? Uh, and what kind of impact could it have on the market? Yeah, while the microphone is traveling, I will pile on and say the ECB raised the question of should a new currency, not just a crypto asset, be run by public or can it be in private hands like other types of utilities? And I think that gets us to Stefan now that the mic has traveled. Thank you. I had a bit more the same question. I was wondering, could you also have a subtitle is central bank being disrupted by by fintech and big tech if you the, op the opposite view if you go to non-banks more and more how how efficient can monetary policy still be when more and more you rely on non-banks rather than on banks all right central bank around Tunis, well, why don't you go first this is a very important issue and i think when you look at libra uh, uh, we are still discussing what is this is this money is this security is this an etf uh, so that's one thing, and, and I think that also also relates to the previous uh, uh, round of comments. And so, what is this activity? What, what is it exactly? How should we regulate it? But I think the monetary policy implications are a, a major consideration. I think one of the main reasons that central banks uh, may not like Libra is because it will it, it calls into question their monetary sovereignty. Um, and, and I think you, when you look closely, you see that, for example, the U.S., which stands to lose its, its uh, reserve currency status, uh, does not like Libra for that reason. I think the ECB, uh, uh, which uh, uh, very much likes a strong euro, uh, may also not very much like a foreign-denominated currency for that reason. But if you are in emerging markets uh, and, and for your international financial uh, transactions and, and, and uh, you are already dependent on the dollar and your, your corporate sector is borrowing in dollars, well then the question, well, should I exchange dollar dependence for Libra dependence is maybe a much, much more balanced question than it is from a US or a, a Eurozone perspective. So I'm, I'm really following this debate with much interest because this is really about sovereignty. Um, it's also indeed about what is the public role uh, versus the private role in, in money uh, provision, in money creation. Um, I think in the existing system we see it's a public-private partnership, right? I mean, in most countries, the payment system is mostly provided by the private sector. Uh, money, uh, most money is held at commercial banks. 80, 90% of money is commercial bank money. The public role is oversight, supervision, and also providing really the basic wholesale interbank, intercentral bank infrastructure. Um, and I think for central banks, really, the question is, uh, yeah, is, 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 is this time for a rebalancing of such uh, of these roles? Uh, and also, if the private sector can do something better, why should a central bank want to step in and do it themselves? Uh, uh, in the end, the goal is, I think, central banks and, and policymakers in the end want to be in control. But to be in control, the question is, do they need to provide services themselves? Or is it enough to oversee private sectors, uh, parties, providing that service? So the central banker's fear is that Libra will become a unit of account, not so much that it will proliferate or even at some point be a transaction method. But the unit of account issue really worries them. My concern is how they will deal with it 
in individual jurisdictions, which could actually lead to a, um, an exacerbation or proliferation of a fractured regulatory market for big tech or fintech, depending on what tools or mechanisms the central bankers use to squash the Libra idea. In the United States, we, the Federal Reserve probably will use the mixing of banking and commerce clause that, that they're empowered to use to say, no, Libra in its current stated uh, proposal will not happen. What happens in Europe or the UK or other um, central banks uh, in jurisdiction, I, I don't know, but I imagine the answer will be different and will lead to uh, disparate issues down the road. So I think it's very, it's very interesting how we've seen the landscape evolve uh, in a matter of a few years, right? Not so long ago, we had the Bitcoin bubble, and uh, Bitcoin is still worth something after all, but that's no longer what people talk about. Uh, and Bitcoin was really this utopia for currencies that wouldn't be uh, linked to any sovereign authority. Uh, and in the end, it does exist, it still has value, but it's not really a currency. So then the debate shifted with Libra to stable coins that would be uh, regulated and authorized. And what we're seeing, and I think our two speakers summarized it uh, quite nicely, is that authorities are hesitant to license and authorize it because of the um, uh, concern for sovereignty. And I think this also extends to emerging markets ultimately because most emerging markets want to be able to do things like imposing capital controls. And after all, the IMF is also saying that may make sense in uh, a number of situations. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's a big difference between having your currency pegged to the dollar versus uh, using Libra. So, uh, so, so I think we're... we're I, I'm not going to venture a definitive uh, forecast on, the, on whether Libra will happen or not, but we see this reluctance, and I think it's very natural uh, given the issue of sovereignty and uh, monetary uh, policy uh, autonomy. Now, the question that was asked by the gentleman over there was about central bank digital currencies, and here it's a slightly different set of trade-offs because there would be no loss of, uh, of sovereignty there uh, by the public authorities. What we would lose, however, is the intermediation uh, role of the banking sector. Because yes, the central bank can take deposits, but what will it do with those deposits? And if you want credit to be allocated with the economy, uh, one thing we know is that central banks will not want to be in charge of the entire uh, function of credit allocation. So you still have a missing link uh, if you go for that um, kind of uh, directions, and that's something that uh, policymakers uh, are keenly aware of. Now, I have to uh, make a slightly defensive comment about this, because there is no proper discussion of this challenge in the report, because it just has accelerated so much in the last two, three months, right. and that's when we were reviewing the final manuscript. So that will probably be a good uh, issue for the next Geneva report. Could we take this central bank hegemonic currency proposal as sort of a rebuttal to this idea that central banks would be on the Libra board and, and give it a stamp of approval? I mean, is this just a little bit of debating as opposed to actual policy well, direction? I think, you, I think you have to make an obvious distinction between a digital currency that would be linked to a particular monetary policy jurisdiction, like a country or the Eurozone, and an international digital currency as Libra ambitions to be, even global. Uh, so, uh, central bankers do a lot of things together in Basel and elsewhere, uh, but one thing they do not do together is issue currency. 
We know that the G7 was due to issue a report at the Korea group, I think, yesterday or the day before, and got delayed. So this shows that it's a hotly debated issue among central bankers. Right. Do we have any final questions from the audience, maybe in the back? No? Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for participating in the discussion, for being here. Thank you to our panelists, and we hope to see you again at a future Bruegel event. Thanks.